Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join Executive Pastor Dr. Tucker York. invite you to turn in the scriptures to Revelation 20, as we near the end of this book, this final book of God's Word. Movie trailers often come with spoiler alerts, says the reviewer, uh, lest they share details with the reader of, of those who have not seen the film and don't want to give, give it away. Revelation 20 is, comes with the greatest spoiler alert in the history of the world. As the grand drama between God and his ancient foe comes to a climactic end, Satan and all those who follow him will be defeated soundly once and for all. But rather than ruin the story for believers, it assures us of final victory. It consoles us as we endure the many evils of this life. The Bible does not give all the details of how things will play out, but gives us a framework that offers hope and sets our expectations. We ought to take heart these words to renew our trust in the Lord with humble gratitude. Please follow as I read Revelation chapter 20. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur and where the beast and the false prophet were. And they were tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. 
From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened. Excuse me. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is God's word. Father, as we read this sobering passage, we would ask that the words of my mouth and that the meditations of each of our hearts might be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Just a week or so ago, our nation celebrated Veterans Day, remembering the end of World War I and honoring veterans of many of America's wars, those who have sacrificed to preserve our freedoms and to stand firm against the forces of tyranny and injustice throughout this world. The last century saw not one, but two great world wars. The first was a stalemate until a superior force from the West was able to topple a determined foe in the East. And then World War II saw the great expansion of Nazi Axis powers that covered most of Europe and almost invaded Britain. And not until after the death of millions of soldiers and civilians did the determined will of Winston Churchill and his allies prevail against the mighty enemy of Hitler and his minions. Today there is war in the Ukraine. Sabres are rattling in the Far East. And those who are wise, who love freedom and love and fear God, ought not to let down their guard, but remain vigilant in this, our evil age. The wars of this past century offer many lessons and also reflect upon the biblical themes we find here in Revelation chapter 20, which gives us a picture of the final battle on earth, the war truly to end all wars. When the last enemy of God and his people will be defeated once and for all. Our passage raises several questions regarding Christ's thousand-year reign, the first resurrection and the second death, and more. But I believe our passage ultimately leads us to praise our great God, as it demonstrates for us God's power, truth, grace, and righteousness. We first see God's power on display by the sending of an angel who holds in his hand the keys to the abyss and a great chain. And like a prison guard, this angel seizes the devil and bounds him for a thousand years, throwing him into the pit, sealing it shut. We see God's power demonstrated as he exercises authority over his enemy, who here is given four names, a sign of authority in God's hand. The enemy is named the dragon, 
that ancient serpent, the devil, and Satan, which means accuser. Satan was under God's authority in the garden when he tempted our first parents. He was under God's authority when he provoked righteous Job with many severe and terrible afflictions. And the same Satan who tempted David to sin and led the Lord Jesus into the wilderness to tempt him was under God's authority the entire time. And in our passage, he is finally overthrown by the power of God. And yet a time is still coming when this enemy will be released and lead a great rebellion against God and his people, but in the end he will be cast into the lake of fire to be punished for all eternity. So the chapter raises an important question regarding this thousand years. And in the history of the church, there have been four major interpretations, four millennial views, if you will. And the key question is whether Satan will be bound in the future, or is he already bound? And of course, concurrent with his binding is the thousand-year reign of Christ, along with the martyrs who were beheaded for the testimony of Jesus, according to verse 4. And among these four views, there, was, there is the premillennial view, which holds that the thousand-year this thousand-year reign and binding is still to come when Christ will reign on the earth for a thousand years before the final battle, ushering in the victory of God, the judgment, and the eternal state, followed by a new heavens and a new earth. Of course, there is a historic premillennial view and a more modern dispensational premillennial view with its various subdivisions and its views on the Great Tribulation and the secret rapture of the church. The post-millennial view holds that, the thousand, that a thousand-year period of peace and victory for the church will come with the spread of the gospel leading up to the final battle and return of Christ. And then there is the all-millennial view, which I hold to, which views the thousand years as symbolic like many of the numbers found in the book of Revelation, a period which began with Christ's first coming and will end with his second and final coming at his great return. So on what basis would I defend this view? Well, for starters, Jesus defended himself against the Pharisees who accused him of casting out demons by the power of Satan by asking, how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? By casting out demons and delivering people from their ailments and afflictions, Jesus demonstrated that he was binding Satan. When he first overcame the temptation in the wilderness and ultimately triumphed over the power of his enemy, by defeating sin and death on the cross. Another indicator from our passage that Satan is currently bound is that the text says that he is bound that he might not deceive the nations any longer. 
We think of Paul writing to his hearers or speaking to his hearers in the city of Lystra. In the past generations, God allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. And later in his speech in Athens, Paul says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. The scriptures would have us understand that before the coming of Jesus, the world was under the darkness of sin, blinded and deceived by our great enemy. Except for where God had spoken to Israel and people were under the influence of the Mosaic law. But now in the gospel age, men's eyes and ears have been opened to receive the salvation of God given through his one and only Son. The testimony of the gospel's advance among the nations would bear this out. Further evidence comes in verses 4 through 6. Here John is given the heavenly vision of thrones and those seated upon it who have been given the authority to judge. John sees souls, those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and the word of God and who had not worshipped the beast or received his mark. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So the question is, when did they come to life? In my view, it was long ago, after they had died as martyrs, and their souls, without a resurrection body, are joined with Christ. And what John is revealing to us is present. He speaks of the first resurrection, the transportation of the soul departing from the body at death and entering into the presence of God. And these, along with the rest of the dead, will experience a second resurrection, when our souls will be joined with an indestructible body after the second coming of Christ. So I would commend to you this all-millennial view as it, I believe, it best handles the biblical data and leaves us the least number of problems with this passage. There will only be one return of Christ at the end of the age after all the nations have received the gospel witness at a date and time that only the Father knows. But faithful believers may certainly disagree over the issue of the millennium, as it is a secondary matter, not a primary one, of orthodoxy. But no matter your view on the millennium, we must all agree that a time of testing and great tribulation lies ahead, as the word assures that Satan will be released to rampage the earth before his final removal being cast into the lake of fire, along with the beast, the false prophet, Hades, and death. As in the days of Elijah, when fire came down from heaven to consume the sacrifice, and the people routed the prophets of Baal and Asherah, so it will be in the last day when God will rise up to fight for his people, sending down fire to consume the armies of Gog and Magog, the mighty hosts of unbelievers in that time, who will gather against God and his church. 
Martin Luther once wrote, the devil is God's devil. And God demonstrates his power by knowing how to preserve his people during evil times and bring to an end the fierce enemy of our souls that he might reap destruction no more. So not only ought we to praise God for his power, his power over his enemy, but also praise him as the God of truth. No less than three times in our passage is the devil referred to as the deceiver, the one who deceives the nations. He is the father of lies. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. God speaks truth. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. And God desires all people to know him, for the world to know him. So much so that he sent his only son into the world. And the world was made through him, and yet the world did not know him. For men loved darkness. And he came to his own, and his own did not receive him, but all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of the living God. Whether marital relationships or family relationships, any kind of friendship or partnership, is a fundamental matter of truth. All such relationships are founded on trust and the freedom to be authentic, to have the confidence that you know this person, that they know you and accept you for who you are. And this is why adultery and betrayal is so painful. It's very hard to recover and restore a relationship when deception has taken place. A spouse or a child who lies to cover an unpleasant truth harms the relationship. Lying is self-protection. It's rooted in pride and insecurity, grasping for power and control. But God is all-powerful and now has ultimate authority. With him there is no pride or insecurity or deceit, for God cannot lie. He is truth and sent his Son, who is the way, the truth, and the life. And so when we worship the God of truth, we're able to speak the truth in love and face, even when we face lying accusations. We may stand firm in the truth, even against hostile opposition. We may join the martyrs, those who refuse the mark of the beast, to uphold the truth, to resist the temptation, to join men in their lies who deceive and are self-deceived. May we trust God, the one who will vindicate us on that awesome day of his return, where every deed will be laid bare before the tribunal of his judgment. So thirdly, this passage calls us to praise God for his grace. Verses 11 and following anticipates that glorious day when our victorious Lord will appear, seated upon a great white throne. The old heaven and the old earth will be no more and make way for a new heaven and a new earth. 
The dead will be raised, the great and the small, for judgment, where the record books of every deed will be opened. And there in the presence of the Almighty Judge will be the book of life. Twice in verses 12 and 13, it says that all the dead will be judged for what they have done. So what do the scriptures mean when it says that we are judged by what we have done? Does this mean that the righteous are saved by their works? Well, the scriptures in both the Old and the New Testaments are clear and consistent. That our salvation is by faith alone in Christ. As Paul writes in Romans 4 that Abraham and David were both justified by faith. Even James in his apparent deviation from Paul's doctrine of justification is cleared when we understand that it's not works justifying the person before God, but the works that justify one's claim of faith before others. A person's deeds give one credibility as a testimony, a real testimony of faith in Jesus Christ. Sometimes we say it this way, we are saved by faith alone, but not a faith that is alone. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 spell out that you and I are saved by grace through faith to do good works. And the book of Revelation doesn't deviate away from this important doctrine. In chapter 1, verse 5, we read that Christ loved us and freed us from our sins by his blood. In chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, reveals that the righteous will be clothed in robes that have been washed and made white by the blood of the Lamb. So in one sense, you can say that we are saved by works, but not ours. We're saved by the works of Christ, the finished work of Christ who lived the perfect life, the life that you and I could not live, who fulfilled the righteous law of God and gave his life as a sacrifice for sins to satisfy the almighty wrath of God, who bore our punishment that we deserved and who is now interceding at God's right hand, that you and I might persevere by grace through the various trials and tribulations of this life. Often, conscientious Christians lack a sense of assurance of their salvation. They might struggle over besetting sins, pricked in their conscience for thoughts, words, or deeds that are not pleasing to God. And this is not a bad thing, but rather a good thing, making the believer aware of his or her sin. is an indicator that the Holy Spirit is active, making war upon the flesh, giving us opportunity to confess and repent of our sin. I encourage any believer who is weighed down, burdened by their sin, wondering whether you are in the state of grace, to remember the gospel, to recite to yourself what you know to be true according to God's word, not listening to your emotions, but being anchored and rooted with the objective truths of God's word. And then fight. Fight back against the lies that you tell yourself. 
Recall the promises of God that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And thirdly, recount the many ways that God has demonstrated his grace and his kindness to you as a believer. Looking back, seeing the signs of God's work and faithfulness bringing you to the knowledge of your salvation, convicting you of sin, leading you to faith and repentance, sustaining you through various trials. God's track record is spotless, even when ours is lacking. He is faithful, even when our faith is weak. Hold fast to him. And all that he has done for you in Christ, promising to bring to completion the good work that he began in you. And fourthly, that great, on that great and dreadful day of judgment, we will praise God for his righteousness. On that day, all the dead will be raised, the righteous and the wicked. The land and the sea will give up their dead. Whether buried or cremated or alive in the day of Christ's return, all will stand before God, the one righteous judge. And the good news for you and I is that God is not only judge, but he is also Father. And we stand before him covered in the blood of his Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Like a defense attorney, Jesus is our advocate who defends his perfect record that has been credited to our account to those of us who believe in him. But not so the unrighteous. For those who will stand before God fully exposed to his holy wrath, their sins are not covered. They are not clothed in white robes, but rather naked and ashamed, covered with guilt and filth. Our final verse, verse 15, says that if anyone's name was not written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire along with Satan and his minions. The lake of fire is equivalent to hell. Hell is not a popular topic in our day and age, and a hell that persists for eternity with eternal conscious punishment is even less popular. And that raises the question, is, is God just to punish the wicked forever? But to answer that question, we must understand who God is. He is holy, righteous, and just. God in his nature cannot tolerate sin. He cannot overlook it. Sin must be dealt with. It must be punished and removed. Sin requires a penalty to be paid. And there are only two options for every image bearer of God. The sinner has a choice to either pay that penalty his or herself or have it paid by another. One who offers to pay it for him. Sin is offensive because it's so offensive before an infinitely holy God requires an infinitely holy payment to cover it.
Recently, I became aware of someone who no longer calls herself a Christian because she cannot believe that God requires blood sacrifice. She finds it distasteful, inhumane for God to have wrath on sin, necessitating atonement by the shedding of blood. Her error is a modern one, that rather than appreciate God's holiness or grant him the right to be God, begins with the vantage point of man, having sympathy for man's plight and trials, glossing over man's heinous sin nature, and taking offense rather that a God of love might require the death of animals and ultimately his own son to cover our sin. Pre-modern people did not have a problem with this concept, as virtually every people group in the history of the world had some kind of practice or ritual by which they might appease the gods for wrongdoing, for uncleanliness. It's only in our modern age, in Western civilization, that introduced the idea that man is good and turns on the God of Judaism and Christianity for having the audacity to say that man has fallen short of the righteousness of God with nothing to repair the wreck he brought upon the world and our human race, but must solely lean upon the substitutionary sacrifice of Christ who alone covers our sin, our guilt, our shame, and our filth. Removed that we might be restored in a right relationship with the living God. We stand firm on this truth. We hold fast to the truth of these doctrines, as weighty as they may be, because through them we find our ultimate hope. The only redemption, the only salvation that is offered to us through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so as much as we might tremble at this passage, we ought to find comfort. The promise of a final judgment. When the enemy of God and man will be vanquished forever. When all evil will come to an end. That time when our warfare will be over. When God will right all wrongs. The time is coming when God will restore goodness and beauty in the fellowship between God and man as first intended in the garden. And all of us whose names are written in the book of life through faith in Jesus Christ will live forever with the Lord in glorified bodies, enjoying the full glory of a new heavens and a new earth. Let us enter this week with great thankfulness and gratitude for the grace and the mighty power of the Lord our God. Let us pray. A great and awesome God, we do praise you and worship you for you are worthy. By your might and your power and your goodness, your faithfulness, your grace and your righteousness, you have accomplished a mighty salvation for us and you will achieve that mighty victory on that last day 
to overthrow our enemy and yours and reconcile us to yourself, to be enraptured in the glory and the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ. O Lord Jesus, come. Come quickly, we pray. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.